This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's lonely out here, ahead of the curve. Just ask Martin Gurry, the ex-CIA analyst predicted the populist revolt in the West almost 10 whole years ago. And we are going to talk about what's next. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Martin Gurry is a former CIA analyst who writes about the relationship between politics and media. He's a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University in Virginia and a contributing editor to the center's Discourse magazine. He's also the author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium, a big fat book that you should get and read. Martin, how are you? I'm great. All right, so uh, Revolt of the Public comes out in 2014. You did a little update in 2018. Uh, what did you get right and what did you get wrong? Are you kidding? I'm an analyst. I don't, <laughs> I don't get anything wrong. Um, I think the basic, um, the basic forces I described in the book, which have to do with uh, a very unhappy public and a very clueless elite class and an information system that is a constant irritant between them leading to loss of trust in our institutions. I think that's held up pretty well. Um, between the first edition of the book and the second edition, I would say the thing that shocked me was I didn't see how fast it was moving. I mean, that was a runaway car, right? I mean, it was just zipping by. I thought it was much more of a this will happen and that will happen. But this is the Internet age. Things don't happen like that. They just explode. So... Um, just a couple of years after the, the, the book was published, we got Trump and everything since then. That was the moment when the articulate classes, the people who are on television, the people who write books, suddenly realized that something was very strange that was happening because this man that they thought was an impossibility was possible and real. So it's the second edition, I would say, I mean, somehow or another, I missed COVID in my predictions, which was, of course, a gigantic political event. COVID, definitely one of those things that most people did not see coming. So I think you can forgive yourself a little bit to some extent. So, so what's your take? What, what is it that happened uh, and how does it play into geopolitics? I mean, to me, to people like me, um, the strange geopolitical analyst, it was not about health. It was totally about politics. Um, I, British thinker um, David Goodhart called it the hour of the state. You could just see this dim bulb going on over the heads of the elites as they were saying to themselves, look, we told them to stay at home. They stayed at home. What else can we do? We told the social media platforms to censor all this stuff. They censor all this stuff. How far can we stretch that? Mm -hmm. And we're, of course, living with the consequences of that today. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you look at the wonderful work that uh, journalists like Matt Taibbi and, and Michael Schellenberger have done to, to expose this incredible uh, censorship, structure inside the federal government, 
that got born with COVID. Sadly enough, I didn't predict that one. Well, it is crazy how fast it unfolded. And I, I am left asking this question of how much further are they going to go? Are they going to nationalize cyberspace? Yeah, I mean, it, that's the battle that's being fought right now. Uh, it, it's a question of, I, I, I find it hard to believe. I'm Cuban, okay, I, I was a kid when I came, but I have a kind of a, always a slightly outsider-ish, I feel very American and I think in English, but a slightly outsider-ish view of American society. And I find myself thinking this cannot possibly happen here. I know where I was born, it happened. I know what it feels like when, when it happened. And I can't imagine it happening here, but that's the fight that's being fought right now. And, and you have to take it seriously. Um, it seems to me like not that long ago when Richard Nixon was caught, you know, manipulating a, um, a cheesy robbery or a break into a, a Democratic uh, office building. Um, the fact that they caught him, he just kind of, he could not accept that. That could not, that was not an acceptable thing. In the end, after a lot of hemming and hawing, he had to leave. Today, when people get caught doing something, they go, yeah, but that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we're censoring. It is actually uh, in the common good. There was an Irish senator. I, I, have a, I keep a list of elite Hall of Fame statements. You know, at the top, of course, is, is Hillary with, with the deplorables thing. Um, and this senator is, is my latest ad. She says, it's for the common good. And yes, we're going to restrict your freedom. That's what we do. We restrict your freedom for the common good. So they get caught restricting our freedom. And instead of doing the Nixon thing and saying, I'm ashamed, I'm leaving, they go, no, that's, of course we're doing that. That's good. That's a fight that, that's being fought at this very moment. And this is the state now. This is the form of governance. Yeah, I mean, like I said, if you come from Cuba, there's a long ways to go. There mm -hmm. is a long ways to go. And when you look at the cast of characters who are doing that with poor Joe Biden sitting at the top, it's not a really impressive crowd that you can say, well, they could just sweep the deck and, and take over. But, um, but it's the fight. I mean, if you want to uh, make sure that your statements online are not, don't disappear magically because they offend some politician, uh, if you want to make sure that your, some of your stands, say, on, on, on what your children should be taught are not criminalized, <laughs> you, know, you have to stand up. You have to stand up. In the book, you more or less call Trumpism and Trumpists uh, a phenomenon of nihilism nihilists just kind of saying, we don't know what we want, but we know that this sucks. Uh, have you revised that opinion in light of the way things have continued to unfold? No, I mean, I think it depends what, what part of the animal you're looking at, honestly. Um, uh, Trump isn't just Trump, okay? There are people like Trump all over the world. Argentina just had an election where they elected this, this guy called Javier um, Millet, Millet mm -hmm. uh, who would puts Trump to shame in, in both the weirdness of the things that he says and in badness of hair, okay? <laughs> the sideburns. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, um, Only a libertarian could have sideburns. Like that. I guess so. Um, and Jair Bolsonaro, who's not in office anymore, equally was very strange. Garrett Wilders, also of the bad hair, uh, just got, uh, his party has the biggest uh, um, number in the parliament in, in uh, the Netherlands. That's a shocking result. Georgia Maloney is sitting uh, on top of the world in Italy. This is not an America thing. We are so parochial. This is a global thing. And I think it's, it's, a, it's called populism. I hate that word because it's essentially an elite word that says something is popular when it shouldn't be, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and what it is is that, that 
irate public that I was talking about, that, that um, mutinous uh, crowd of people that may be as much as a majority in many of these countries, um, these are people who believe in, I mean, I call them the public, Goodhart calls them uh, the somewhere, is the people who are rooted in a place as opposed to the anywheres who are global and can be at home in Paris or in Manhattan, you know. Um, these are people who believe that their country is a good thing, that their, their, their way of life is a good thing, they're patriotic, many of them are religious, and they feel like not just democracy, all the mainstream parties, but the entirety of the culture has been taken out by these very hostile forces. Um, and because all the parties more or less play the elite game and say the same words, the reason a lot of these populists are so weird and have the weird hair and say outrageous things is because they're signaling to the public, I'm not them, I am not them. Now, this is perfectly legitimate. This is not nihilistic. This is a, in, in a democracy, this is a large chunk, as I say, maybe a majority in many of these countries that is simply not being recognized and being treated as an illegitimate, usually it's the, the Hillary thing, right? Which is, you know, you're racist, homophobic, xenophobic, a whole list of things you're not allowed to be. That's who you are because you, you're, you're against me. Um, so they're not represented. So these populists open up the, the conversation to, we need to represent these people. Um, the problem is that there doesn't seem to be a, a populist party or a populist um, program, okay? Uh, being against isn't enough. Uh, and so far, as I see it, um, uh, that's pretty much what's happened. And I think Trump uh, gave voice to a lot of these, these sort of voiceless people. Uh, I think that's a legitimate thing that he does. Um, but when you listen to him talk, he's, he's like a, you know, uh, kind of a loose cannon. I mean, he's, he really doesn't have a sense of how fragile our institutions can be. He, he, he knocks around uh, the government uh, pretty, pretty foot loose. Um, so is there a nihilistic element in particularly his rhetoric? Yeah. Does he represent a legitimate strand? Yes. So the question is, how can that strand be given voice? Okay. I mean, not to, not to toot my own horn, but I, I'm going to be publishing in the next couple of months, I think, in City Journal, something called uh, Prologue to an Ideology of Freedom, right? There needs to be, what we have is an ideology of control. There's really not, the other side is really far more nihilistic, I think. The, the people who are trying to you know, censor, the people who are trying to criminalize opposition, um, trying to destroy history, trying to overturn statues, basically lobotomize society from the entire past. If you lose your memory, you're basically lobotomized. Um, they're the nihilists, but they have a good ideology of control. They say, well, you know, there's, there's ecology and you can't do this because of ecology and there's identity and you can't do that because of identity. Uh, we're all kind of like put in this, this um, straitjacket. There is no ideology of freedom. And I'm not pretending to... to put one forward, but there are certain aspects of that ideology that, that I can at least put out there. Well, this is television after all, so if you don't want to toot your own horn, you've come to the wrong place. <laughs> uh, you know, here's, here's what I think is really concerning right now to so many ordinary people who would describe themselves as populists or supporters of the dissident movements or whatever. Uh, let's run down the list. Um, you've got Brexit in the UK. Uh, UK turns into ground zero for this sort of five eyes intelligence community uh, censorship and surveillance and control of the internet. You've got Georgia Maloney, 
um, oh, let's stop the immigration. Uh, you you just watch in, in almost in real time how the, the press coverage is this leading indicator where it goes from horrible fascist lady, basically Mussolini in high heels, but oh, aren't those heels beautiful? And wow, her fashion is really cutting edge. And now she's really just kind of been co-opted completely into the EU Borg. Um, Bolsonaro, he, he, you know, a flash in the pan, really. Um, you run down the list. I mean, even, even Zelensky. Oh, he's, he's a, an irascible comic. He's a comedian from outside the establishment, and he's just sucked right in. Um, every single time one of these populist figures rises, I mean, even Donald Trump, he said a lot of things. Did he do those things? Not necessarily. There's no wall. He, he put Steve Mnuchin in there. We got Mnuchinomics. Um, every time one of these major populist figures does get elected, and the elite, oh, this is it, this is Hitler 2.0 or 5.0 or whatever number we're on, it doesn't happen. They get, they get integrated back into the Borg. Is that a process that, that can actually be broken out of? And if it can be broken out of, who's going to be strong enough to do it? Well, I mean, I, number one, it's not 100% the case. Victor Orban in, in Hungary has been pounding away yes, for like... There's, there's one. So I was just in Budapest a few months ago, and they're very different. Yes. That's a really different and interesting case. Of course, he also gets, doesn't get love from the press. Um, well, what, what does that side, and I'm an analyst, by the way, I'm not an advocate of anything except sure. I'm a very simple-minded, I don't think I'm, I'm a simple person, but I'm a very simple-minded advocate of democracy. Coming from Cuba, mm -hmm. I can tell you the worst democracy, the most dysfunctional democracy is infinitely superior to the most efficient dictatorship, all right? That's pretty straightforward for me. That's all I advocate. But if you're going to now say these people are kind of endangering some of these freedoms, which I think they are, um, you need to counter that with something. You can't beat something with nothing. They have an ideology of control that is very worked out, very powerful. From the White House down to the Internet mob, it all works pretty smoothly, okay? What's on the other side? Yelling and screaming, which I'm sorry, I, I, I am not a particular fan of, of Trump's. Like I said, I think he represents a legitimate slice, important slice of, of the public that is completely unrepresented. But yelling and screaming doesn't get you anywhere. You need a plan. You need an, a, a structure, an intellectual structure that says, well, when, when confronted with this problem, you do this instead of that, all right? Where is that among all those people? Um, Maloney, flash in the pan, I don't know. That, 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 I, let's hold off on that one. Um, the public is gonna keep electing these people and the danger, of course, is that they're going to keep getting weirder and weirder because insofar as the guys with the, with the bad hair starts being co-opted, let's get somebody who's really wild, you know? Um, so then that's not a good thing either. Um, so this is as much an ideological problem as a political issue, I think. And, um, and I find that those, and maybe you're among them, uh, who are on the opposite side politically, um, don't spend enough time thinking about that. Another thinking is, what are we for? What are the what are the pillars ideologically? What do we stand on? You know, if, if you look even as far back as the Tea Party, for example, um, which was a, one of the prototypes of the revolt of the public, well, very early, early, which was kind of ironic because I think Obama was a prototype as well. So I mean, it was again this this weird dynamic. But they kind of looked at the Constitution like it was a plan. They said, we're constitutional fundamentalists. And you're looking at the Constitution, this is not a plan. You need to explain to you what you stand for, right? So, um, you know, small government, yes, yes, well, why, why? That you need to make the linkages. You need to write the articles. You need to think the ideas. And I think 
the energy is there. I mean, the in, immense energy to counter what's going on. I don't think anybody's lying down. You know, this, this weaponization of government, a phrase that I also hate, but I get it, I get what it means. Um, it, people are reacting very strongly against it, um, but you need more than to expose the, the, the censorship. You need more than to expose the, the possible corruption at the White House. You need to present what you stand for. The other side has said it. The other side is very clear. We've got this identity and ecology, and you don't have to look, if you look real, you know, even for half a minute, the whole thing disintegrates. It's not, it, it's a pseudo-ideology. It's not really an ideology. But it gives them enough coherence that they can say from the top to the bottom, this, this is where we're headed. You know, and they can justify, for example, censorship on that basis. They can justify uh, canceling people. They can justify firing people from their jobs. Um, so uh, you can't beat that with a lot of yelling and screaming and a lot of saying, you know, I'm going to throw people in jail. No, you need, a, you need the ideas that are positive, that, are, that, that take people. You know, Reagan, okay, possibly, you know, I haven't voted in the presidential election. God, forgive me, you know. I think I'm going to do it this time, but I haven't done it in quite a while. Reagan was like the great president of my, of my lifetime, right? And what he had was this very optimistic, shining, you know, personality and ideology. He was not about how he hated communism. He was about how great this country was. He was about how we've been doing it this way. Now we need to be doing it a different way. Let me explain to you why. He went to to Russia and explain, I mean, this is an extraordinary moment to the Soviet Union, and explain why it is that your system doesn't work, and our system, which is a lot less organized, a lot less structured, works a lot better, because free people interact much more smoothly, much more effectively, and to everybody's satisfaction, infinitely better than when there's one guy at the top deciding, as Gorbachev would say, how many lazy hoses there ought to be built, you know, manufactured in any one year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you say, you say you're an analyst. I've, I've been involved in opinion politics, I guess you could say, for a long time. But I come from, you know, I come from the world of political theory. And I'm mostly interested mm -hmm. in understanding what it is that's already happened okay. rather than sort of saying, you know, what, what should happen. And, of course, these two things are, yeah. are connected to some degree. Yes. Uh, so I have my own, my okay. own list of uh, sort of uh, 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 top ten uh, elite catchphrases. Yes. And uh, the, the newest one that, that entered onto the list, uh, Hillary Clinton herself. She's a champ, by the way. Oh, she's, she's I mean, just the whenever I want, yeah. Whenever I'm writing something and I want some outrageous little blurb on it just to, to typify elites, I go to Hillary. But what did Hillary say on that? Oh, perfect. Put it in. I mean, she's amazing. So maybe you've heard this one. Uh, she said uh, that uh, Trump supporters would have to be fundamentally reprogrammed. Yes, I did see <laughs> Uh, and you know, I, I, by by coincidence or maybe not, I was reading some some Jean Baudrillard at the time, and it's like right out of the pages of Baudrillard, where fundamental reprogramming is this kind of global system of governance. Um, but it's not, you know, look, there there are going to be evil people at every level of society. There are going to be ideologues at every level of society. We shouldn't be surprised to see them there. But that's not the full story. There's structural stuff that's going on. There's yes. formative stuff that's going on. Yes. And a big part of what your book is about is yes. how technology in, in different manifestations, when it's pursued in different ways, channeled in different ways, has formative effects that are beyond anyone's particular control. And yes. they shape us in the same way that, that we try to shape them once we've loosed them on the world. Um, that kind of reprogramming, uh, that Baudrillard describes. That's a structural reprogramming. That's a, a phenomenon of the way that technology is sort of enclosing everything in the world. 
Um, that's a, a yet another level of, of sort of challenge for politics, challenge for democracy, beyond what the agenda of particular elites might be. What is your advice to, uh, to Democrats, small d Democrats, to people who, who really do want to ensure that citizens can be involved in their own political life? How should they respond to the way that technology seems to be enclosing and, and eating uh, every aspect of life? Well, first of all, we, we need to be thankful to Hillary. I mean, I'm personally thankful because she <laughs> helps me write very easily, but we should all be thankful to her because she says out loud what they're all thinking, right? Yeah. So, um, I think the information structure is fundamentally, I mean, this is what we all thought at the beginning, right? Uh, the, the digital frontier. This is the most American thing over. Mm -hmm. The internet is the most American thing over ever, right? It, it's kind of like um, this vast untapped wilderness that anybody can say anything in and do whatever they want. In fact, everything we're discussing today about the elites is based on panic. It's based on panic, that's what the book is about. Essentially, the 20th century modality was I, Mr. President, Professor, Walter Cronkite, name your elite, spoke down to you. You couldn't talk back. Authority figures. Yeah. You you did, we went, thank you, thank you, because why? Because it's, the stream of information was tiny. And these guys were giving us something. So thank you, you're an authority. You have information, I have none, okay? Well now, the information uh, landscape is, is literally mind-bogglingly, and I, I can't even begin. I don't think anybody has mapped it. I mean, people mapped it for like, from 2000 to 2010 or so, and it was like, this is, this is crazy. We can't do this, it's infinite. Mm -hmm. I as well call it infinite, okay? And this is totally destructive of authority, totally destructive of people who stand on a hierarchical structure and feel that because they have done that, because they have jumped all the hoops and faced all the humiliations on the way up, now it's my turn, right? Uh, they've been swept away. It's a, I call it a tsunami, an information tsunami, and it has swept away the hierarchies of, the, of our 20th century um, institutional structures. All our institutions are basically 20th century in shape. And the 21st century has just gone like this, okay? So everything you hear about uh, from the elites is panic. Everything I would say to the people, small d Democrats, who want to have their voice heard is this impulse to control the internet. By the way, I don't think it's possible, but, that's a, but I'm not sure that it is. So I, in the, just in case that I'm wrong, I think we have to, the fight for me is, um, this is a frontier. Um, uh, the thing I love about this country is that it always, no matter what, you know, there was once a physical frontier, there's, there's the closing of the frontier. The closing of the frontier was a myth. We always have some, it's like an infinite, it's an endless frontier. We're always sitting on the edge of something weird and wild that, that, that nobody else seems to be on the edge of, right? Uh, that's, that's the information environment. We have to keep it that way. It's going away from us. It's being taken away from us. And I would say, um, again, the people like, like Taibbi and, and Schellenberger and, and Barry Weiss and the, the, the House uh, Republicans have done some good work on that. Yeah, they, they, they have. And, uh, you know, Taibbi and those guys were, were just uh, getting mobbed in a congressional hearing and, and the work that they're doing is really important. You know, I, I couldn't help but notice, though, that uh, Barry, since you, you brought her up, she got the standing ovation from the Federalist Society for saying, you know, these, these bad people with bad ideas just kind of emerged out of the academy and now they've taken everything over. Um, and, uh, you know, we need to stand up with the right ideas and then we'll win. And the amazing thing, if I interrupt, about those three guys is that they are 
way more liberal than I am. Yeah. You know, they are, these are not, they are really truly old time liberals. Like my, my father-in-law was his, you know, New York Jewish liberal guy. And, and you know, it, it, today he would be a dinosaur, a dinosaur. Yeah. And these, these three are essentially that. They're, they're liberals that have been left behind by all this strange identity and ecology extremism. Well, they, they have, and they're trying to, you know, rally here at, at what might be the end. And so I, I bring up Barry. She goes through the speech, and, you know, her account, the, the last Cuban-American to sit in this seat on the show, Ted Cruz, a similar <laughs> account where he says, you know, it's the Marxism stupid. It's cultural mm. Marxism. It started in the academy. It's ideology. It came with bad ideas, and that's sort of what spread. Uh, he did not give a, a technological account of why we are where we are, and neither did Barry Weiss. She didn't mention tech one time. And when I look at wokeness... And when I look at the way that elites are scrambling to uh, use that kind of woke framework to summon forth a kind of spiritual authority over technology, uh, what I'm seeing is the attempt to solve this crisis of authority that you describe uh, coming from the new left, you know, not the, the right. old school liberalism of yore. Um, that attempt is one that recognizes that the only way, to, the only place to go to locate an authority that gives human beings, sort of restores our claim to uh, really legitimately say what should happen with technology. That's gonna be a, a kind of spiritual authority, whether it's like a woke worship of justice or whether it's something that's a more traditional form of, of religious or spiritual authority. When I look around the world geopolitically, what I see is you know the Chinese are sort of, yeah, there's some disagreement because a lot of those people are just still straight up materialists. But the Taoists in China are very straightforward where they say, look, we're going to do better guiding and shaping technology than the West because we have this kind of uh, uh, cosmology that doesn't have this kind of dualistic tension. You look in India, what's going on in India? How are they making decisions about how to control technology? Well, yeah, it really is sort of Hindu nationalism calling the shots. Um, and Modi's happy to resort to that because uh, it's a tool of statecraft and you're looking around for other tools to, to reestablish your sovereignty in a digital age. That's what you reach to. You look in Russia, you know, they're very clear in, in, uh, in 2020, sort of rolling out a fundamentally new and closer relationship between the military and the church. Uh, and you see the Vatican in Europe trying to be right at the front of the line saying, well, we might not be the best innovators, but gosh darn it, we can be the <laughs> best regulators of this technology. Um, and then here in the U.S. Uh, and, and in the U.K., basically in the Anglophone world, we've got this, uh, this almost like cold religious war, uh, which is not new for us, of course, uh, religious conflict over whose kind of spiritual authority is going to be asserted over the, the technology. Do you think that I have that more or less right? I mean, I think in a sense, yes. I, I would, I would, um, I would modify it this way. See, all those people you mentioned in the old world, and I'm not a young guy, so I belong to the old world, uh, and I can tell you what it was like. Um, they would have had that. They, they, they would have had it easy because they would have controlled all the media. All right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they tried to exploit the new media. They're doing that. Um, but in the old days, they wouldn't have had to do that because they controlled all the media. So they have an extra problem they have to deal with this, this new media that they have to somehow deal with, right? And I think you're fundamentally right. I think there is a spiritual force or, or, or a, a moral force, I would call it, I guess, that needs, needs to be applied to the internet, for example. Uh, it, 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 and I think it starts, by the way, not by passing laws and, and pointing fingers and saying, you should stop saying that, but watching what you do and say online. Um, but this is an American medium. 
And I actually think it's just kind of, it's like the Wild West. It really is like a, it, it is, it terrifies the elites because it, they can't tell how it's going to play out. Even now they can't tell how it's going to play out. It's a very American medium. It is kind of devoid of rules. It is loud, rude, crude, all the kinds of things that they accuse us of, which are good. By the way, the, the, because the alternative is not, you know, we hold some civilized debate. The alternative is we get told what to do by the people in charge. So, yes, you, you do need that moral, spiritual force to counteract the other side. But part of what this medium is, is actually, you know, a free-for-all. It's kind of an, a good all-American barroom brawl, right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'm for that. Well, I think it does take a certain kind of courage to say you can't have your freedom without some amount of violence or risk of violence. Uh, and maybe it, it, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here does come down to what, what, what does freedom mean right now? When you read a guy like Baudrillard, he says, well, you know, what we're in right now is tech is hegemonic. Uh, it's a system that, that's designed to eliminate all misfortune from, from, uh, from life by creating this kind of virtual world. And so the only way that it can do that is through a kind of compulsory liberation. You will be free. We will tell you all the ways in which you must be free. Um, and just kind of invading the conscience of every person and uh, ensuring that um, they are compliant. Uh, not compliant in the old sense of you listen to the dictator and sort of just do what they say, but you have to uh, surrender yourself to this experience of kind of total liberation. That's not what you mean by freedom, right? No, and, and I'm not sure that I agree with that definition of our information environment. I, I think, number one, I, I, I do believe that the information structure you know, sets the stage and arranges the props for the human drama, all right? So it can't tell you what to do, but it kind of puts boundaries around what you can do. I mean, in, in, uh, in the days of Caesar, he could dictate his his uh, Gallic Wars thing from horseback, but he couldn't broadcast them back like Mussolini did by radio, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, what do you make of, uh, of this, this kind of cold civil war that's brewing in the West? Uh, do you think it's gonna come to a head? We keep seeing these kind of controversies springing up in, in various different places on the periphery, uh, but it feels like, you know, if this is the Wild West, we haven't really had that real good old fashioned bench clearing brawl quite yet. I've been asked that a lot, actually. And I've thought about it. Um, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I think that there is a, a, a ideological conflict and I think there is a gigantic political conflict and it is in some ways also a class conflict. Um, but you need two things to have a real shooting civil war. You need two sides that are armed and organized with opposing ideologies or, or, a, or a cause that is of, of existential importance. So you have the North and the South and slavery. You have in Spain, Catholics and communists and everything, right? Everything is up for grabs. Um, I don't see that today, all right? I honestly believe that we are far more likely to, um, to disintegrate than to coalesce into two sides that fight. I think we, we, may, we may, the worst that would, could happen at this moment would be a kind of ideological feudalism in which, you know, we have these little islands of opinion that shade away from each other and, and gather in little war bands online and fight with each other uh, and can't agree on anything. Um, the other thing you need is a lot of young males, and a lot of testosterone, and we don't have either of those things. Mm. 
yeah, that seems to be plummeting. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to shake out. And maybe it won't. Uh, pro- probably not up to us. But I, you know, I, I, I think what you're saying is, is reasonable. Um, I think it's, it's definitely at least part of the equation. Uh, probably the strongest counter-argument that I hear is like, yes, but AI. AI is here, and it's centralizing, and it's going to be centralized further. And so we might have all these kind of you know, different tribes that can't agree on anything, but there's going to be this Leviathan looming over everything, <laughs> wrapping its arms around us all. Skynet, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, if it makes me look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll take it, okay? <laughs> Otherwise, I don't get it. Um, I am not. Let me, let me make a disclaimer. I am not an AI expert. Um, I don't know a neural network from a hole in the ground, but so I look at things through the technology, which I don't understand to the society behind it. And, um, what's involved here, of course, is human culture, which loosely you could call knowledge. All right. Um, and which is a, um, passive, almost non-existent thing until you make a query, until you need an outcome, until you have a purpose. And then suddenly you use the culture, the knowledge for that. You have those resources. And it seems to me what AI does, as far as I can tell, you know, we, our, our ability to bring resources to a problem, to, to an outcome, to a purpose, was very limited. Again, it was like the small amount of information that existed back in the old days of the 20th century when I was a young man. The internet became kind of a swirl. It was that, that tsunami. AI is, is, is the maelstrom, right? It's, it's just, so every, every, every purpose is going to have this gigantic, gigantic culture-wide, every, every shred of human culture is going to be brought to bear on any question we ask, all right? Um, and I have no doubt that that could co- come up with answers that are incomprehensible to us. AI can never get beyond the sum of human knowledge, but it can come up with relations that we have absolutely no understanding of. So um, I don't see it as Skynet. Nobody has ever explained to me, you know, the, 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 the doomsters and the D-cells and all those people. Um, they have built these thought experiments where, you know, we all get turned into paper clips or, you know, nanotechnology gets somehow injects us with lethal poisons or something. There's always like huge air gaps in those arguments um, because obviously the knowledge that that is possible will act uh, against it ever happening. People will turn around and say, well, we must prevent this possibility. I actually think the burden of AI may be not that it destroys the world or it conquers our mind or it becomes Skynet, but that our attempts to regulate against those possibilities, which are speculative, um, may turn out to be a real regulatory burden on, on both our lives and our real ability to express ourselves and just on the economy. Yeah, I think I think that's very plausible. Uh, you know, I, I look at these guys and I, I sympathize. You know, yes, there's some scary things going on, and it's all too easy to see how things could go uh, apocalyptically wrong. Uh, but uh, you know, if if you're coming at this challenge um, with a let's say a, a spiritual deficit or a sort of lack of any kind of um, coherent theological framework. Uh, It's going to be very easy for you to look at what's unfolding and say, that is an evil God. And the evil God is going to loom up over everything and and eat us all. 
Um, you know, if you're coming from uh, uh, the kind of religious background that I think most Americans share, you're not really going to believe that such a thing as an evil God exists or can exist. Um, and I think probably if we had a little bit more of that, you know, it's funny because it's, it's humility, it's a certain kind of spiritual humility, but it actually gives us, I think, a lot of uh, uh, self-confidence and, and courage to say, you know, hey, you know, we, we, this isn't, the technology itself is not evil and it, and it doesn't have the power of an evil divinity, we can put our hands back on the thing and kind of, you know, steer it around a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, governance. Um, we talked about the elites. We talked about Hillary Clinton and company, people who everyone knows the names of. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about the intelligence community. That's your background. Uh, you, you, as far as I know, you, you haven't uh, traveled around the world sort of pew pew at, at the bad guys. Uh, but I, I suspect you do know lots about the IC and how it all fits together. Um, right track, wrong track, uh, what are they doing right? What are they doing not so right? Yeah, you're right about me. I mean, I had the least sexy job in CIA, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the ladies were not throwing themselves at me, and I wasn't pay, playing Baccarat in Monte Carlo. Right. Right? I was a, a, a global media analyst. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I walked around the halls and talked to people sometimes. I, I think fundamentally the intelligence, CIA, which is where I belonged, has an impossible job. Let's start with that, okay? And the job is predicting the future for the president, all right? Um, the way it deals with that is by inventing this incredibly waffly language that gets fed to the president so that whatever happens, they can say, yeah, well, you, you see the word over there? That's what we meant, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it's not really their fault. I fundamentally believe that human events are, in principle, unpredictable. So this is a bad business model. So let's start with that. I always felt very bad about, CIA, and there's a whole history behind it that most people are not interested in, but, but the history plays into the fact that what CIA claims is doing is presenting platonic truth, right? It's not something that you can say, well, look from this perspective or look from that perspective. No, it's, this is the truth, Mr. President. Now do with it what you will. Was, was there a moment or an era when it became that? Was it something from the different beginning. From, from the from beginning? From the beginning. It was actually, uh, I don't know, if, you, you know, you probably have read Walter Lippmann, who was an actual full-blown mm -hmm. Platonist. Uh, <laughs> the, the, um, the, the people who trained the analytic, built up the analytic branch, were all Lippmann uh, disciples, and they were all, again, very much witting and conscious Platonists. They're believing in, you know, we gotta get out of this cave and we have to you know, understand the world that we're, the way it really is. That said, that fundamentally difficult, and if I have to say it, amazingly smart and brilliant and, and courageous people. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, um, the, the lobby in CIA has a place, a wall, where there are these stars. And the stars have no names, it's not like Hollywood. He said people who are anonymous, but they died. They weren't, they weren't actors, they, they died for their country, all right? In my tenure, the stars more than doubled, all right? So these are brave people. So I, 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 whenever I say anything about CIA, I want people to understand all of this. However, something has happened. Something has happened. In the old days when, we used to call the DCIs, the Directors of, of Intelligence, um, retired, we knew them inside, right? These were powerful personalities. I mean, they were, they were usually friends of the president or at least so prominent inside the, the, the intelligence bureaucracy that they just stood out. Um, so we knew them as these incredibly powerful people, very opinionated. They retired and they became these wishy-washy individuals. 
because they didn't want anything they said to shadow back to what they had done when they were in service, right? They didn't want to say, well, I think this, this candidate is an idiot. Then you're going to go back and say, oh, well, when, when people were in charge, way back, when this guy was back there, was he, was he shading his analysis because he had... No, so these guys became these milk-toasty individuals, and it was kind of remarkable. I, I would laugh listening to them talk. What has, what's happened? That's completely changed, right? So they have any number of people from the intelligence community just... I mean, say the, the word Donald Trump to them, and out come their guns, and they start shooting. I mean, what the heck is that about, you know? So that's totally new. That's, a no, that's part of this reaction of the elites. This has been very shocking. I mean, my institutional, you know, CIA person is very shocked by the fact that intelligence is a closed world. It relies on the trust of the American people because it's secret. You, you, people are not allowed to know what's going on. If they lose trust in... Our, uh, their ability, our ability to be fair-minded politically, the whole thing blows up. It just blows up. So um, if I have to say where I think it is right now, and by the way, I think that's the top layer. I, I have every faith. I'd like to think, I don't really know. I'd like to think, optimist that I am, that, you know, middle down, the same brave, brilliant people are still doing the same difficult and dangerous work that, that was being done when I was there. But the top is rotten. There's no question about it. Top is rotten. And in the, the IC, the intelligence community is, is just much larger than it ever has been. You think, you think it's too big? Oh, I thought that when I was there. Yeah. You know, I mean, somebody told me at one point that something like 60,000 intelligence pieces get got uh, written in one year. Who the hell looks at all that stuff, you know? Um, I always thought, I mean, simple-minded person that I am again, you know, I love the old British cinema model of, of intelligence where you would go to the, oh, he's, he's, he's the Serbian guy or, or he's this, the France guy and he would know everything about France or it's everything about Serbia and you didn't need I mean, when I was there, they had a whole branch on Cuba. It was like 15 people, all right? And they got everything wrong because Fidel Castro was smarter than them. But 15 people writing about Cuba, it's like all there was to know about Cuba is, can you read Castro's mind? If you can't, but, you know, then they invented that there was a Castroist and the, the, the Fidelists and the, and the Raulists. And basically, these myths got invented because if you get 15 people writing, very intelligent, they'll invent something to write about. So I think, yes. It's way too large. And I think, honestly, the whole thing was built in the um, Cold War era. It, when you shadow an enemy, an opponent, long enough, try to you know, anticipate their moves, you start to become like them a lot. Mm -hmm. I thought CIA by the time I left was a little bit like the Politburo, mm -hmm. you know? They, 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 you had um, coordination, was like a party line. In other words, you weren't allowed to have a bunch of voices saying country. Think, nope, everything had to be coordinated into a single intelligence line, all right? You had this Politburo of directors that sat on top. It was, I think the whole thing needs to be rethought. You need, obviously, intelligence to feed on our decisions, our, our governmental decisions abroad. Um, but I think the structure we have is antiquated. I think the people we have, I don't know what's happened to them. I can't understand. They are so different from the people that I used to work under, right? And, and be proud of, even when I disagree with them. I disagree with them a lot. You know, your boss, you always disagree with your boss. Sure. Um, but 
you always respected them. These are people who are powerful people, people who had really wanted what they thought was best. And then they would leave, go out the door, and suddenly they became these quiet little mouses. And, and you knew that that was costing them. You, know? you knew they were probably yelling at their wives you know, because they, they, they wanted to say what they wanted to say. But they had the institutional discipline to remain the little mouse so they wouldn't shadow back on, on their tenure. How about Five Eyes? A little more up to date, supposed to be, you know, the most powerful intelligence network in the world. Is, is it working? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I, I had a very, very marginal view into that. I, I was with the Brits a lot. Um, uh, otherwise, I, I don't know. I, I, I suspect when I look at New Zealand and Australia and then even Britain, that they are afflicted by, I think that our affliction uh, it's a, an Anglosphere affliction more than anything else. Uh, that what I was, we were talking about with, with the elites and, and with the, um, uh, the control ideology based on identity and based on ecology. It's everywhere in the world, but I think the Anglosphere has got it worse. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's a tough spot to be in. Uh, it used to be that the, the U.S. could at least look over the Atlantic Ocean and say, well, you know, there's still a British empire. The, you know, we're, we're not going to go spinning off our axis. Uh, and now it's all on us, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I don't think we want it. I don't think we want it. The American, traditional American stance on the world is what what George Washington said in his farewell uh, address, which is no entangling alliances. Leave us alone. We're a happy people. It's an unhappy world, you know. So since World War II, we have been enmeshed in the world. Um, and I think uh, it, it, it goes against the grain a little bit. The problem is, if we go away, and believe me, coming from Cuba, I can tell you, if we go away, the world gets infinitely worse and more dangerous for us. Yeah, certainly. That, that still seems to be the constant. Um, I, I want to ask you, you're, you're at the Mercatus Center. They are, uh, they're big fans of progress, uh, so they like to say. Um, what's, do, do, do you think progress is, uh, is the right banner for us to wave right now? And, and if so, what, what is, how do we know if progress is working for us? Well, I guess it depends on how you define it. Yeah. Um, again, you know, it, the trouble of being old is, you die pretty soon, you know? <laughs> but the good thing of being old is you get a lot of perspective, Yeah. all right? So I, I have a lot of perspective on progress. And you know, my children, now in their late 20s and, and early 30s, they, they gotta laugh at us. It's like, you did that, you know? You, you had a telephone, you had to go like um, And it was attached to a cord, and you couldn't go anywhere with it. Um, I, Medical science, okay. Um, again, being old today is not what it used to be, right? Um, uh, health is so much better. Our understanding of, of how to cure what used to be incurable diseases, we've eliminated so many, like polio. So, I mean, when things get gloomy, it becomes, it becomes kind of like a depressive trigger to say, this is a terrible time we're living through. And, you know, there was a famous Spanish poet who said, any pastime was better, all right? <laughs> uh, and, and that's just not true, okay? Yeah. That's, that's just true. I would say the opposite is probably closer to the truth. I'm an optimist, I guess. I'm a short, I always describe myself as a short-term pessimist, long-term optimist. I, I think what has happened since the Industrial Revolution 
in terms of changing the, the economic, you know, the, the wealth of the world, uh, the scientific revolution, understanding how things work and, and how we, you know, can cure ourselves of disease. Um, the democratic revolution that has happened in the last, you know, 150, 200 years. All these things, you know, look back to hunter-gatherer days. I mean, these are new. If you label that as not progress, I need to understand then what your definition of progress is. Yeah. You see uh, any heroes out there? You see anyone on the landscape who, who seems to be ready for the, for the moment we're in? Politically, no, honestly. You know, um, I, I, I despair a little bit of the quality of our politicians. And anyway, the ones that seem halfway okay never seem to win, right? So um, I think in terms of people who are doing good work, and I, I don't want to keep hammering on these, these people who happen to be friends of mine. Uh, but by coincidence. It, yeah, by coincidence. Um, it's really not coincidence. We're all doing the same work. Sure. Um, you know, the Barry Weisses of the world um, who could, could give that speech. At, at, that, that, to me, that was kind of a... You have to know her. I mean, this is, and she kind of spelled it out in the speech. I mean, mm -hmm. she was a kind of a, a weird person to be standing in that spot yes. addressing that audience. And suddenly you see that what she said is you have to build alliances, right? You have to build alliances. I, I'm looking past the fact that many of you probably think that I should never be a, a gay married person, you know? to the fact that there are more important issues than that that we agree on, right? Um, the Taibis, the Schellenbergers, people who are just, I, I, I watch them and I think, I wish I had their energy, I mean, their enthusiasm, the way they get out there and they get batted down, they get up there. Um, so I admire them a lot, I admire them a lot. And there's many others, J uh, Jonathan Haidt, I admire him a lot, he's the same ilk. Somebody who started out very liberal and allowed his, his research, you know, he's a social psychologist, allowed his research to moderate his liberalism because he saw that, you know, he, he, did, he was a researcher into morality. He saw that in, there was liberal morality that, you know, emphasized certain things, but missed huge swaths of what morality actually is that the conservatives emphasized stronger. And he, you can see him move. Um, there, there are a lot of good people doing good work out there. Politics, not so much. Well, and it might be the case that, as you suggested, things are just going to come down to a lower level, a little closer to the ground, a little more, you know, yeah. local, a little more face-to-face -face, uh, than what's come before. And, you know, I, I, I am optimistic about that, if, if that's the right word to use. Uh, I do think, uh, you know, we can, we can try to, to blast off out of all of our human problems into some new frontier, uh, but uh, after a short period of time, you realize that it's pretty airless out there, and at some point, you've got to come back down to the ground. Well, I mean, I have always said uh, the future, in the future, every democracy may be Switzerland. I don't know if you've been there, but it's a, it's a fascinating country, right? Every canton, every little tiny little province, some of them are tiny, right? Yeah. Pretty much runs itself. There's almost no central government. If you want to be, for example, a citizen of Switzerland, you don't apply to Zurich. You go to your canton and you start shaking hands. <laughs> you say, I want to be a citizen, and they vote. So what that means is, at the end, they can't say, you're bringing in immigrants that we don't want. No, you, we voted on this. The other side can't say, you're a racist and you're keeping out those people. No, we voted on this. So it is an agreement at the local, local level. And I think in one future way in which we may govern ourselves is to push down. The 20th century believe in global solutions. That worked for some things. It really doesn't work for many others. And I think, Increasingly, as we are politically divided, uh, fractured, it works less and less. 
So the more we push down decision making, I think, the more satisfied people are going to be, or at least the less least grumpy. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, I think that's a responsible and a hopeful note to end on. So Martin Gurry, thank you so much for your time and thanks for joining us. It's been fun. We'll be watching for uh, for what's next. Thank you. So onward we beat. Uh, until next time, I am James Polis, and this is Zero Hour. May God have mercy on us all.